Well, we're in Exodus, and um, I was going to shoot for three and half of chapter four, but it's just too much. But keep in mind, this is kind of a two-parter, mostly because of uh, Moses' character, and we'll be talking about his that a little bit tonight, but next week is a, a lot more detail, chapter four. Uh, but um, I think we got enough here in chapter three. And maybe we'll get home a little before the late hour so you can prepare for tomorrow's wonderful life in Wisconsin and all the snow we're going to get. And for those of you watching online, if you're in Florida, well, (laughs) Um, anyway, uh, we have uh, chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn up. And so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up from the land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve me on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you, uh, has sent me to you. And moreover, God said to Moses, you, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. And this is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. 
And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and they, then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt and you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman will ask of her neighbor, namely of her, the one who dwells near her house, Articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So, God calls Moses. Um, again, the context for this is Genesis, but you know the, the, the main thing really in the context for all of Scripture is God is going to redeem mankind to himself uh, through the seed that was promised to Eve, and the seed promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants, the children of Israel. The seed that would bless all the families of earth and bless all the nations of earth. And that seed is Christ. And for a cross-reference, that's Galatians 3.16. And we talked about that last week. And also, God promised the land of Israel to the children of Israel forever when he made that promise. And also, God promised the land of Israel to the... Uh, and now the children of Israel had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, as he told Abraham when he made that covenant with them, and we talked about that last week. But now God hears their cries, he sees their oppression, he knows their sorrows, and now Moses is born and escapes Pharaoh's uh, mandate to kill all the newborn because the Israelites were getting too much for the Egyptians. And he escapes, and he's floating in the river, and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and taken in as her own, raised in Pharaoh's house until he's 40 years old. And then he finds that he's, uh, he wants to visit his brethren. And then we read in Acts 7 and in Hebrews 11, he refuses to be known as an Egyptian. He forsakes the pleasures of Egypt. He chooses rather to suffer with his true brethren. And by faith, it says in Acts, he esteems the of Christ, that seed that he knew about, that seed that uh, was promised to Eve and that seed promised to Abraham and his descendants. And so greater than anything that Egypt would offer, and so Moses forsakes Egypt and the pleasures of Egypt and chooses rather to suffer reproach, the reproach of Christ, to be with his brethren, the Israelites. And so um, he kills this Egyptian, he sees that's uh, beating one of his brethren, and this thing becomes known, and so he flees. Pharaoh is chasing him, and he flees to Midian, he takes a wife, lives there another 40 years. And so context leading up to tonight is, here's Moses, 80 years old, and he's out tending the flocks of his father-in-law Jethro, the Midianite. Well, he tends... Uh, he's tending these flocks in the, it says the back of the desert, and he comes to Horeb. And if you want to put up that picture, I've, I've 
put up a little map, and I'm going to throw something out at you because through you know early centuries after Christ, you know the the kings and royalty of of Europe would go down and conquer and. I can't remember their names or who it was. They would go down and they would name this place after something that happened and they'd go on. And they went down to Sinai and that's the Sinai Peninsula and they found a mountain there and they said, well, this must be it. But there really is no archaeological, um, uh, I don't know if we got that map or not. Maybe not. Um, but uh, there's, there's two locations possible for Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. You remember Moses was sent to Midian. We saw the map of last week where you cross over that Sinai over the, the, the uh, Bay of Aqaba or that um, stretch of water through there. And that gets you over to Midian, which is nowadays Saudi Arabia and close to Yemen. And uh, there is a mountain there that's been fenced off by the Arabs. It's forbidden. You cannot go there. And when we get to um, Exodus 14... When they cross over the sea, um, I'm going to see if we can't bring a few pictures and, and be able to talk about the evidence that they found there that's more likely that that is where they crossed over to get into that land of Midian, to get to that Mount Horeb, which is in Saudi Arabia. Nothing's for sure. There's no map anywhere that lasted since then that says this is where Mount Horeb is. But um, it seems quite the argument. And uh, because of the archaeology, it, it becomes interesting. So... Just a little sidebar. You know, um, often God brings his servants out to the desert. He's just tending sheep. He's out in the desert. He's by himself. And he sees this bush uh, that's burning but isn't consumed. And it could have been a little bit more than just a bush. It might have been a tree. And he's curious. He goes over to it. And the Lord obviously put that there. And, um, but, you know, the, the Lord brought him out to a desert a place where he could show himself to him. And it's true for all of us. Uh, you know, he's about to bring the Israelites out to that same desert, to that same mountain. He's about to show himself strong uh, for them and give them the Ten Commandments, Moses up on that mountain. Um, John the Baptist was wandering around in the desert, remote places. Jesus, when he was uh, filled, or uh, when he, the Holy Spirit descended on him, he's baptized by John. Immediately the Spirit takes him up and sends him out in the desert, a remote place by himself, to be tempted by the devil. And then, you know, it's uh, Matthew 4 there. Um, Paul, right after conversion on the road to Damascus, the very first thing it says that happens is he goes to Arabia. Now, um, he returns back to Damascus and he dwells there 13 years and then goes to Jerusalem finally, finally. But and when we get saved, like for example, uh, when I got saved, it just so happened I immediately got laid off. Well, it was good because I didn't have to go back to the tool trailer and look at all the stuff they had hanging on the walls in the tool trailer that I worked out of. And, and uh, I could go and hang out with brethren. I, I was, probably did three or four Bible studies a week. I'm, two of them at Calvary and they had a little white church over on Richmond Street. And uh, then I'd go to the Pilgrim's Cafe. They had a Christian coffee house. And I'd go hang out there the rest of the week and hang out with the staff just to talk to them and bend their ear and drove them crazy, I'm sure. But it was a hunger. It was a desire to get to be where I could know the Lord instead of wrapped up in the world. There's something to that where the Lord takes us away from the world, maybe takes us away for a time from our job, takes us out when we first get saved so we can start to get rooted and grounded and, and know him. 
and maybe free from some, some distraction. That may not be true for everyone when they, get, when they get saved or when they come to know the Lord, but it seems to be a thing that he does. And, you know, brand new babies desiring the sincere milk of the word is um, what Paul says, that, or what Peter says, that we would do in order to grow and be nourished. And uh, what do people do with their youngest of their newborns? Well, they protect them like crazy. You can't let them go near the stove. You can't let them go out in the street. There's so many things that you've got to watch out for. It's the same spiritually. And oftentimes the Lord takes us out into a place by ourselves and all. So that's kind of an application there. Um, in verse 5, he says, you're standing on holy ground. Don't come close to this. Take off your shoes. Um, if you remember Acts 7.25 uh, last week, Remember, uh, Moses supposed that his brethren would have known that time's up. You know, maybe, maybe we can get out of here. Maybe we can uh, leave Egypt like God said to Abraham, our forefathers, that he would. And he was surprised that they didn't understand that. And we looked at that last week. Um, but Moses would have done this in his own strength maybe 40 years ago. It's, it was, the way it's worded in Acts is almost as if, you know, I can do this. Well, now it's been 40 years wandering uh, over in Midian, tending flocks. He's 80 years old, and maybe now he knows he's not going to do anything in his own strength, but he's going to let God do it through him and all. But um, it's, God is holy. This is holy ground. Um, he's true to his word, and uh, he's true to his word to Abraham, and he's going to be true to his word through Moses and all. But... Um, you know, he's going to give Moses his name. And as he does, there's a lot to it and there's a reason for it. Um, we're going to see how God wants to be known in the next few verses. But he says this to Moses so he knows that this is the one true God. Okay, this, I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that phrase re reoccurs throughout this passage three times. We see it in this chapter alone and throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. The God we serve is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God the, who created all things and the God who appeared to uh, Abraham and chose him out. This is the God we serve. You know, yes, uh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God with the Father from all eternity. But we need to remember that it's also the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's who he is and identify him. And he wants to be known by that. In fact, he says, this is going to be the memorial, my name, for all generations, for all ages. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself. But if you want to turn to Hebrews 12... One interesting aspect of this burning bush is it's burning and it's not consumed. And, you know, he will be leading them as they're wandering through the desert and on their way to the promised land. He'll be leading them with a pillar of fire by day and a cloud by, uh, or a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And God is, it's holy. This, this pillar would land and settle on the mountain and if they touched the mountain, they died. In Hebrews 12, uh, verses 29, uh, 25 through 29, speaking to us, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. 
For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. And now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, and the things that which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. It's holy ground. Um, we, as Christians, are on holy ground. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. When you're born again, we're born again by the Spirit of God. He gives us of his Spirit uh, as a deposit. We are the church, and the church isn't a building, as you all know, it's the people. But the church, the body that we have, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's holy. He's holy. And it's a, it's a serious thing. He, he's impressing to Moses and impressing to us that this isn't something that's just to be played with. It, it is a serious thing, and yet it's a glorious thing. It's a joyful thing. And it's, a, it's a comforting thing to know that we have Almighty God dwelling in us, that allows us to do the things we know we're supposed to do. It's not this iron fist that's about to smash us because he's holy. It's his mercy and his love and his grace that is, is in us by his Holy Spirit. And so I don't want to misrepresent that, but we are on holy ground as Christians, and it's the Holy Spirit who is with the Father and the Son from all eternity that dwells inside of us. And it's only through that finished work on the cross that we by faith can draw near. Moses, don't draw near. You're going to get burnt. Yeah, I didn't even look it up, but the, when the, the Ark of the Covenant was being returned back to David to, be, to go to Mount Zion, and it's being brought back from the Philistines, uh, it hit a rock. And I should look this up and do the whole story, but it, uh, some guys reached out to grab it and, and all, and they looked inside. They died immediately. David just shuts down. What do we do now? And he wouldn't even go and he wouldn't even look. He, he, it's, it gives the idea he doesn't even, doesn't even know what to say to the Lord because here these, he wanted to do this great thing for the Lord, bringing the temple to, or bringing the ark to Jerusalem and uh, the tabernacle and all. And then this happens. Well, it's holy. You can't look in the ark because in the ark is the law. You can't touch the ark because the ark is the law. In there is Aaron's staff that budded and, and uh, Aaron's rod and all. And, and the, the manna from, from uh, uh, this day when they wandered through the desert. And it was all kept in the ark or this, this time, these years when they wandered about. And uh, then there's the Ten Commandments, the law. Well, you can't go near that. Why? Because you are human. You're, you're, you're flawed. You're going to fail. What's on top of that ark? What covers it? This thing called the mercy seat. This thing that Jesus is called in the New Testament when he's called the propitiation. That word propitiation means mercy seat. And as such, you can now, because of the mercy seat, because of the sacrifice that was done on top of the ark, you know, our Lord sacrificed for our sins. Now we have access directly to the throne of grace. And uh, back in Genesis, or Exodus, um, verses uh, 7 through 12, it says, he, the Lord has surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry 
because of the taskmasters, and I know their sorrows and all. And so the Lord has seen the affliction of his people. First thing we've got to realize is these are his people. They're not just some people that are claiming to be the people of God. No, he chose them, and they didn't choose him. And that's the same is true for us. Uh, God chooses us and works in our lives. But it says he's come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. And it says their cry has come to me. Now this builds our faith, first of all, because we know that he hears us. There's many times in your walk with the Lord you'll think you're praying, but nobody's hearing. It just seems like there's this heaviness on you, and you don't know, is it real? Am I just talking to myself? No, he hears, and he sees, not based on you and what you feel, based on his love for you. And he's going to hear you. He's going to see you. He's going to know what your afflictions are. He's going to know what you're enduring. He's going to know what your sorrows are, and he sees the oppression. This is not just an Old Testament story about God. We need to know and understand that, uh, you know, his relationship to his chosen people, Israel, is also an example and a parallel with his relationship to us, you know, because he's unchanging. And we know him because of his character and his love towards his people. Israel is the same love and character he has towards us. He saw us in our slavery to sin. And he sent somebody, somebody who was like Moses, decided to, to share with us the, the word of God and then by his Holy Spirit going with him just like the Lord's going to go with Moses, and we'll see that as well. So he saw us, he knows the outcome is death and eternal judgment. Why is it so important, his name and who he's called? Well, because he loves us, doesn't want to see us die. He doesn't want to see us uh, in, in torment. He doesn't want to see us um, in eternal judgment. And if we follow after false gods, that's what happens. Why drive out the nations of, of, of Canaan? You know, why not just get along together? Well, because they have all these false gods that they serve. Egypt has, we're going to find out, as many false gods there that, that there were plagues that came to deal with them and that the Lord sends, proving to them how he's the one true God because he wipes out all these gods that they had, gods of frogs and gods of fleas and and all of that, uh, and the river was one of their gods and all. So the Lord deals with all that. We'll be studying that as we go. But if you want to turn to John 8, um, 34 to 36, I don't think we always realize, and sometimes it's hard to convince people that we're trying to share with, that we were slaves. But indeed, Jesus said so. Um, Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. My point at this point, because we're going to be back in John quite a bit here tonight, but you know, we are indeed slaves to sin when, before we get to know him, before he does set us free, and before we are free indeed. And that's one of the first things we need to realize before we can get saved is that we're sinners. You know, we talk about this so often, but who needs a Savior if they don't know they're lost? If they don't know that they're sinners, they're going to be judged. 
And so he loves us, and that's why his name is important. That's why it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's Jesus who's with the Father from all eternity. And that's why it has to be the Jesus of the Bible, not Jesus that the Mormons made up or the Jehovah's Witnesses made up and twisted scriptures. And that's just two of the most common examples I always give. But there's many, many who even call themselves Christians, who call themselves evangelicals, who even might say they're born again. They turn Jesus into many things, like Jesus only. There is no Father, there's no Holy Spirit, it's all Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. You know, it's a Godhead. There's three in one and all. And there's many that start talking about a Jesus. Well, it's okay that I live with my my boyfriend or my girlfriend because Jesus understands. He knows we love each other and we're never going to do anything else. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. You've made him into your own image. You've made him into something that you can be comfortable with. That's an idol. That's a false god. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. And that's why he desires that we know who he is exactly and again, why um, when the people that have been in Egypt for 400 years, they've been watching all these other gods get worshipped with all their different ceremonies. And when he comes, he wants them to know who this is, who he is, the one true, the creator and all. So um, now First Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Again, um, they didn't choose God. He chose them. He called Abraham to himself and uh, separated him from his family, separated him from his father's household. And now um, he wants to establish that they know that he has chosen them. These are my people, he says in Exodus. Well, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10, we too are coming to him as a living stone as his chosen people, rejected indeed by men, this living stone, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put be put to shame. Therefore, you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, well, he's the stone that the builders rejected, and, but he has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Why? Because they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may be that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were a people, but now the people of God. Um, for, for once you were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, we were just Gentiles. Peter's writing to the Gentiles. Um, uh, the first one is to the pilgrims of, the, of that dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, so the dispersed Jews, but also the believers, no longer Judaizers, no longer uh, keeping the law, but following the grace of the Lord. Now, um, it's interesting how he says that uh, we are a chosen generation. Well, that's what he said about you know, the Jews, that Moses was going, those are my people. He calls us his people. But notice, 
we're holy. We're his own special people. What was Israel throughout the generations and will be again after the rapture of the church and God deals with Israel for seven years, that land over there? Um, they're a testimony to who God is. And even now, to this day, they still serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they've lost him because they've denied who Jesus Christ is. And so until they accept Jesus, they're lost as just like any heathen or, or Gentile that's not saved. Um, but they are chosen, and he will be faithful to them to draw them back after the rapture of the church. And so, um, same for us. We're here now, and not just gone to be with the Lord as soon as we get saved, because we're a light to the world. The, the world knows that, that there is a God in heaven because there are believers that love him and love one another, who walk in the Lord. And so we have that same aspect that they had, and that is we also are a stumbling block, you know, because they, they are disobedient to the word. They don't want to obey the word. And speaking of the Gentile world, you know, the, the people in town, the people we know, the family and friends that just don't want to get saved or haven't gotten saved yet at all. So we have obtained mercy. No longer are we those that are people that have not obtained mercy. So um, this, uh, you know, they are cho God's chosen people. And I kind of talked about this a little bit. And we also are his chosen people in Christ Jesus. Now, I would refer you to last Sunday's message uh, with Dwight if you didn't get to see it, uh, weren't able to be here or see it, um, because there is a heresy out there that talks about dual covenant theology. And there's one totally separate covenant to get to heaven with the Jews and one totally separate covenant through Jesus for us. Well, that's heresy. There's only one name under heaven by which man can be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. And Dwight went through a great, he cleared that up. Uh, it's a, there's no dual covenant uh, with uh, one with Israel, one with the church. So going back to Exodus uh, 3.11, Moses responds in a way that tells us how he sees himself. He says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? You know, he's been in Midian for 40 years. He's married. He's got a couple kids. And, um, you know, not only that, it says that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he's talking about himself. He has a particular image of himself um, that goes into great detail next week in chapter 4 if the Lord tarries because this becomes an issue, a very serious issue with God. Um, if you want to read ahead before next week, but um, so Moses is saying basically he doesn't have much to bring to the table, uh, but none of us do. Uh, you know our righteousness on our best day is filthy rags, and uh, you know we've learned that we've realized that we need him for every good thing that happens in our lives, and we praise him. He gets the glory then, doesn't he? We don't we don't get the glory. He's not going to share the glory, and all that was accomplished for us to draw us back is done on the cross. We can't add anything to that. But Moses says, who am I to bring them out? And so he starts to show his timidity, his reluctance, his self-doubt. And again, chapter 4, we'll kind of take that apart a little bit. Um, but 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells the Corinthians that 
he glories in his weaknesses because it's the power of Christ that can be manifested in him. He had these, he had these defects. He, he had a thorn in the flesh from Satan. Um, you know, again, he had no strength of his own. He wasn't looking, God isn't looking to our strengths uh, because he wants to show himself strong in, in our behalf. All we've got to do is be available, and be willing to let him work in us. You know, it's funny, later he actually talks about the foolishness of the cross to the Corinthians. He says, you know, it's the foolishness, but for those who are believers, it's the power unto salvation, the cross. You mean in order to, you know, enter into heaven, we have to die first? We don't just get better and better? You know, the man, man's wisdom is such that we improve and we improve and we improve, and finally we've arrived. You know, and that's basically Gnosticism. They think they have this higher knowledge. They think that, you know, they're privy to this special knowledge and therefore they're a little closer to divinity. And there's some language out there in the world today, um, especially among some of the, um, uh, the main characters in, in the world stage. And I'm going to leave that to Mary for Sunday. Um, she's going to be doing an update. But... Uh, they, they're saying, we will reach Godhood. You know, we're going to get there. And um, it's pretty uh, amazing that a fallen creature like that can feel so confident in themselves. I'm thinking they must not have a lot of aches and pains because it only takes a little bit of aches and pains before you realize, well, this body's not going to last forever. And now they got uh, guys who will put a chip on your brain and upload your memory to a server somewhere and you get to live forever in, in a, uh, uh, what do they call it, a, an avatar. And they're literally saying this is going to, and you'll be linked to everything. You'll be, and the movies are portraying that and making it sound like it's real. People are buying it. People are deceived. People believe that they're going to live forever. If, you know, if they're, and they portray it as something that everybody will be available to. Well, it's millions of dollars. I mean, even years ago, they were freezing people, thinking that, well, I'm going to get frozen so that by the time they thaw me out, there will be cures for the disease I died from, and they will be able to live to 100. Longevity is tempting. Um, boy, I tell you right now, I don't want to live any longer in some of the pains I wake up in every morning. But you know what? God's grace is good. And, and what it does is it keeps me doing what I know is going to hasten the day that he comes and spreading his word if I can. Um, but uh, God desires people to know and to love him and not be followers of men and their uh, wisdom of men. There's no uh, mediator between God and men except Jesus Christ. And there's no uh, priest that needs to do something with you before you can approach God. Or there's no praying to Mary. There's no praying to Joseph or, or uh, listening to the angel Moroni or whatever you want to follow, whatever religion. that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And we've have, we have access right before the throne of God through him. Back in Exodus um, 3, verse 12, he says, So the Lord says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. Here's the sign. When you have brought out the people of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So it's not a sign Moses gets to take with him. It's a sign that when they get out and see it, Moses will know that he brought them out. Now there's obviously going to be much more uh, when, he, when he shows them the things that he'll do, the mighty works he's going to do uh, in Egypt. But skipping to, um, you know, 
what it is basically he's telling him here is I'm going to keep my word. I told Abraham 400 years and you'll be in a country that's not your own and a faraway place that you don't know, but you'll be there for 400 years as slaves and you'll come out at the end of that and I'll bring you to the land. He told Abraham that. And then he's going to keep his word. And he told Moses the same thing. These are my people, my chosen people. And so he says, what's the sign? What's the token? Well, I'm going to bring you right back here and uh, you'll be serving me here on this mountain. So verses uh, 13 through 15, it gets kind of interesting. He says his name is I Am, first of all. And then he says, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I am that I am simply means I exist of myself. I don't need any help. I don't need anybody to prove it. I don't need anybody to measure it and make sure it's accurate. I am. I exist. I am. Creator of all things without beginning and end. And he says, this is my memorial to be remembered to all generations, ages, and all time. Well, a name in this context is the reputation, the fame, the glory of the person that has that name. To all generations means throughout the ages, to all periods of time. Well, why all this clarification about God's name? And we kind of went through this already, but it's because he loves us. You know, there were many gods in Egypt, and, and we'll, you know, as we'll see as we keep going through here. And, um, you know, again, because he doesn't want us to perish. He doesn't want those things to happen to us. Uh, it's his love for us that we know who the one true God is. And it's his love for the people we witness to that he, they know the one true God that he is. And so we bring his word, like he said to Moses, you know, I said it. This is what we said was going to happen. We bring the word to people because God's going to honor his word. We don't have to prove it. We don't have to, to uh, you know, Paul would say he tried so hard to persuade men. And yes, we should be in the business of seeking to persuade men. But the Holy Spirit's got to go before us and put these things and cause these things to grow and the seeds in their life that only he knows that they can, can uh, recognize, like you and I, we're all, every one of us is different. And like I say, you know, the, the world is, um, every person ever born is, is different. No two people are the same. Every story is different. And uh, yet the Bible applies to every single one the same. There's not some parts of the Bible that work over in Bangladesh and other parts of the, parts of the Bible that work over in, in Saskatchewan. You know, it is all entirely what is intended for each individual. And maybe they don't all, all get to study it all and know it all, but he'll reveal it to them in his kingdom, if not. And uh, at the same time, who Jesus is and what they know need to know about him, Paul says in Romans, the heavens and, and all creation, you know, speak of the Godhead even, the Trinity, and his nature and all. So it's Romans chapter 1. But um, if you want to turn to John 6, um, you know, he's not going to force anyone to love him. Moses is bringing to those uh, Israelites the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is important. Who he is is important. 
And he says, I am that I am. And he desires that they come. In John 6, 35 through 51, we're going to just do a quick walkthrough of what's known as the seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. Um, and we'll talk about how important it is at the, at the tail end of it, but the Jews knew, you don't say, I am. That makes you out to be God. And indeed, he is describing his nature and who Jesus is, is indeed the Son of God, the only begotten, who is God with the Father from all eternity. And I know I like to say that every time, but that's who he is. You've got to clarify for some people, you know. So in John six thirty-five to 51, says, um, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, praise the Lord. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father, he who sent me, that all that he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. Now raise him up on the last day. Well, then the Jews complained about him and said, I am the bread of life, and, uh, because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Don't murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life, he says. Again, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. And this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The bread of life. I am the bread of life. Backed up by the miracle in the next chapter, he, he heals or he feeds the 500. I'm sorry, the 5,000. Uh, or he had, had just fed the 5,000. And then he ties it together with Moses and the manna that God provided. Gave them life. Well, they died. No, you eat of this bread and you'll live forever. Um, Jesus also, you know, in talking about the Last Supper, if you will. He said, drink this cup and eat this body. This is my blood and uh, eat, eat this bread. This is my body and this is my, my blood given for you for the transgressions. And he says, do it in remembrance of me. There's nothing magical about what happens to the, the grape juice or wine and the bread when you eat it. Nothing happens. It's just grape juice and wine. What happens is he's asking us to remember who he is. And that's what is our salvation. What we remember that he saved us uh, on the cross, his death and resurrection. The fact that he had to shed his blood, the fact that his body was broken and all. So figuratively also, he's the bread 
And we are to remember this when we break bread together as believers. But he indeed is the bread. If you don't partake of him, there's no life. And that's um, what he is. I am the bread. Next one is in chapter 8, verse 12. I am, boy, I am that I am, the existing one. And he simply says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, the light of the world, this happens right before he heals and proves who he is by healing a blind man in chapter 9 so that he can see. And he, you know, uh, gives light to this guy's eyes, proving that he is indeed the light of the world. And what's the point? Well, that you're walking in darkness if you're walking in sin, if you're not acknowledging who he is and believing on him. But whoever follows him, you know, and there is a there is a an opening of our eyes. One of the fruits in my life, more than I can think of anything else, um, certainly uh, the love that he's given me for for one another, the love he's given me for the lost, and and love he's given me for him. But one of the strong, the most significant things we were talking about last Saturday at men's prayer meeting is, you know, these disciples on the road from. Uh, um, the road from, um, <laughs> I can't think of it. Anyways, was it? No. Well, the, they, were, they met Jesus when he was uh, going, when they were heading back to Jerusalem, road to Emmaus. And, um, and then uh, he, uh, you know, he opened their eyes to the word. And what did it say? Their hearts burned within him. He, beginning with Moses, where we are tonight, and prior, you know, gave them who he is from the Old Testament. And um, so uh, he is the light. He opens our eyes. He heals our blindness. We follow him. We're no longer walking in darkness. In uh, John 10, verses 7 through 10, then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheepfold, or the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Contrary to that, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now, there is no other way. He is the door. There is no other way to enter the kingdom of God. Everybody else is a thief and a robber. He's false. He's deceitful. He's only looking for what he can get. And, you know, we all know the stories about the, the TV preacher who's always passing the plate, and you got to send in 100 bucks, and I'll pray for your aunt, and she's going to get saved and healed. And, you know, there's, we, we've seen the charlatans. We all heard the stories. It's, it's stumbled a lot of people. And, you know, as soon as you start talking about the Lord, oh, you just want money, you just can't wait, you know. And I'm, I'll tell you one of the nicest or most, uh, I don't know how to say this, but convincing things to me when I showed up here, you know, many years ago was they, what, there's no plate to pass. There's a box in the back and people don't even know where it is for the first six months they're here. They don't know what to do until they ask somebody, gee, you know, I'd like to help out. 
and they show them where the box is. And, uh, but that's not the issue. You talk about money when you're teaching through the Scripture and you come across a place where it talks about money. And that's all we do is teach through the Word. God's going to provide, and He lays it on people's hearts to do what they're going to do. But there are those that they steal, they just want to take away, they just want to kill, they just want to destroy. And he know, We know He's talking about Satan and how he seeks to completely destroy, why he makes it difficult and why he gives us grief and there is warfare when we do want to talk to people and we do want to share with people. All of a sudden, there's doubts, and we'll talk about that next week with Moses, the timidity and the reluctance and all that, and why God said, no, I'm with you, you know, and we'll talk about that. But um, then just the next few verses, he's also, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, but a hireling, he is, uh, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I am known by my sheep. And as the Father knows me, uh, even so, I know the Father and laid down my life for the sheep. Um, good shepherd. Well, he's good because he lays down his life. Um, no greater love does anyone have for anyone except that they lay their life down for. And a good man might lay his life down for you know, a good cause or for a, a righteous man or something like that. But he laid down his life for us when we were enemies. We were walking in our own ways. And you know, I don't know if you realize it, but before you got saved, you were an enemy of God. You might not have thought so, but that's what the Bible says. To, uh, to walk in sin, to walk in the world, is to be at enmity with God. In uh, chapter 11, the next page, I guess I should also say, the nature of God being the good shepherd is also described in Psalm 23. And he was the shepherd of Israel as well. He's also the shepherd of the, the church. Um, but chapter 11, 25 says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, proving this, he had just, or was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and without doing a whole study in chapter 11, um, Lazarus, the brother of, of Mary and Martha, um, you know, had died. And, you know, Jesus had to tell him that he is the resurrection and the life. Uh, and needed to ask them, do you believe this? Um, right before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he's proving that he's God by saying, I am, and then by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. In Revelation 1.18, he alone is the one that holds the keys to death and Hades or death in the grave. And also Jesus fulfilled what God promised in the Old Testament, Isaiah 26.19, which says, Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for the dew is as of the dew of herbs, 
and the earth shall cast out the dead. And clearly, he was fulfilling that prophecy. But it had to happen because the penalty for sin is death. And we deserve death, every one of us. And he died in our place. He uh, exchanged his perfect, eternal perfection and holiness, blameless, without fault, spotless, the Lamb of God sacrificed for us who are completely and utterly sinful. And we walk free. And it's, um, he, is the, he is the resurrection and the life. Not only will he rise from the dead, but we'll have eternal life. You know, he's the one that holds life in his hands. He's the one that gives life. And, and um, so next one is chapter 14, verses 6 through 10. It says, Jesus said unto him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes unto the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, you know, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. It's all we need to see. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, are one, or uh, I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. And so he's saying, indeed, he and the Father are one, but he's the way, the truth, and the life. Now, he isn't, we already saw he's the only way. He's the door. He's also the word that became flesh. He's the word. I'm the way, the truth. The word is truth. God's word is truth. And he's the giver of, and sustainer of all life. It says, by him, through him, and for him, all things were created. All things are sustained. Um, all things have their being by his word. And what it means is the same I am. I exist of myself. I don't need anybody to help. I don't need anybody to see how long ago I came into existence because I didn't come into existence. I am. It smashes the P in my brain because that's about the kind of brain I have. And so it is more than we can comprehend, but he is eternal beyond comprehension for now. But, you know, we will be there and we'll know all things even as we're known. And we can't wait for that. But he's, he is the self-existing one, the I am that I am, creator. And by his word, all things are held together. And that's everything. Uh, we'll see more next week, but because um, you know, he gives, without giving it away really, he gives Moses a number of things to prove who he is. A rod that turns into a snake. And um, uh, the... Uh, I shouldn't have that. I shouldn't do that because I don't have my notes in front of me. And also the, the rod, he strikes the water. And also the, uh, he puts his hand in his cloak, brings it out, and it's leprous. He has power over all animals, all living animals' life. He has power over the health of every human being. And, it, and he can turn the water into blood. And he has power all, over all of the elements. And we'll talk about that. I gave it away. So, again, he is the way, the truth, 
and the life. In him is life. And then 15, 1 through 5, same page. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out in the branch, and it, uh, as a branch, and is withered, and they gather them, throw them in the lake of the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. The vine, only in him do we bear fruit. Abiding in him, do we have any power to live the Christian life and do all the things. And who gets the glory, like he says in verse 8? Well, God's working this in us. He gets the glory. And again, it's his name. Jesus, with the Father from all eternity, it's his name. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd the way, the truth, and the life, the vine, the resurrection and the life. That's his name. I am those things, he said. And that is who we bring to the lost world. Like Moses is bringing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, I am that I am, he brings to the Israelites so that they know who they're going to serve. Well, when we bring people the gospel take them out of slavery to get them and bring the Lord to them so that the Lord can bring them up out of slavery. This is the I am that we're bringing. You know, that, that uh, bread of life, light of the world. The only way, the door, and the good shepherd because he lays down his life for them. John 8, if you go back a couple pages, was Jesus really God? He says in verse 48 to 59, Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus said, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. That's important. And there is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. And then the Jews said to him, Oh, we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, you shall never see death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be, by the way? And Jesus answers, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. Good thing to do when we're sharing with people. It's not us, it's the Lord. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you do not know him, but I know him. And if I say I do do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him. Why? 
because they know that he just made himself equal with God. And you know, if you've got your uh, Jehovah's Witness or your Mormons on your front porch, and uh, you know they don't want to listen to what you got to say, you know you can say, you know, Jesus said, "I am," the, you know, and only that was holy ground. Jesus is God with the Father. And why did the Jews pick up the stones to kill him? Because they knew what he said, that, that he is indeed God. And so when you go back to Exodus for the last few verses, um, 16 through 22, you know, go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what he has done to you in Egypt. You know, go to the sons of Israel, tell them, you are my concern. Tell them, you're my concern. Tell them, I will bring you out of the affliction of slavery. I will bring you to the promised land of milk and honey. Isn't this a perfect picture of the gospel? When we go share the gospel, go tell them. Tell them that, that we know you're in slavery. We know that you're hurting. And we, we, you know, the Lord sees the sorrow. He sees the, uh, the oppression. He sees the taskmaster of whatever it is you're addicted to and how you can't stop sinning no matter how hard you try. And if you manage to squeak it out, then you stumble and fall and the whole thing falls down. And uh, then he says... I will strike Egypt with all my miracles and you will plunder the Egyptians. And it's true. At the end of time, God will indeed judge the Christless, the Christ-rejecting world at that great white throne judgment. But see, we have that redemption. And so does anybody who repents and trusts Jesus for forgiveness of sin. Amen? So take that to the world because, you know, he loves them and he's asking us, like Moses, um, go, go lead my people out of slavery. So let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word, and, and I just pray that you'd uh, continue to give us the strength and uh, just to call us, just to minister, whatever the simplest things you've given us to do. And Lord, whether it's uh, just to, to share who you are without even saying a word by our actions, let it be so that people might be asking what it is that's different about us. I just pray that you'd be working that in us. I pray that you'd be preparing hearts of those that uh, come across our paths, that, uh, that they would be uh, wanting to hear how to be free from their slavery. So again, we just lift up tonight. Pray for uh, uh, safety for tonight, tomorrow, everybody traveling, and ask that you would uh, let us go in your love and fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.